Today on Pilgrim Radio's His People, Keith Evans on major reasons people seek biblical counseling and how to help them here with anxiety. He's saying, look, if your father uh, knows how to care for the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, and he has guaranteed to give you all things, that he's given you the very portion that Jesus himself has earned for you, and you need not worry about these things. You need not be concerned about these things. What he's calling us to there, what Jesus is calling us to there, is a confidence in the Lord, a trust in the Lord, which casts out those, those sinful worries. Keith Evans, next. What issues do you think a Christian counselor addresses the most? Dr. Keith Evans says there are three in his practice, and he's going to tell us about them and how he tries to help. Dr. Evans is professor of biblical counseling at Reformed Theological Seminary, and he wrote about his counseling experiences in an article titled, Three Main Issues at the Gentle Reformation Site. Dr. Evans, tell us why you wrote this piece. Yeah, I'm often asked, what are the issues that I see the most in counseling? And so when people ask that, they're thinking about pastoral ministry, and they're thinking about my current ministry as far as the director of the the counseling uh, institute here at RPTS. And they're just wondering, what do I see the most of? And they're they're kind of just trying to get a cross-section of what do people in the pews often come to receive help for? And after being asked that question dozens of times, mm-hmm. I felt like I wanted to commit it to writing of, well, these are the three that I typically see. So anxiety, pornography, and oppression in marriage, however we want to categorize that that third uh, topic. But these these are the three main that I, that I see, and I just wanted to write about it and bring that to people's attention. And, and as you say in the article, it uh, this is anecdotal. In other words, this is exactly what you just said. These are the uh, those that you see most commonly, and in any sense, before we start diving into them, how it might contrast with the non-believing world? Yeah, I think that would probably be in flux with regard to whatever issue is in vogue in our culture. Mm. As far as sexual issues, for instance, it seems like that's certainly above the fold as far as what everybody's talking about, seeking counsel on. Mm-hmm. Um, so I, I'm going to see a lot less of those types of issues. Now, I understand pornography is a sexual issue and the dynamics in marriage are going to have sexual ramifications. But as far as you know, transgenderism, I'm going to see <laughs> a whole lot less mm-hmm. than world is going to see for that or comfort with one's uh, homosexuality or something, I'm going to see an awful lot less of that than uh, perhaps uh, the, the secular therapist. But I do think that anxiety would be the one that would cut across both sections that um, people are counseling in the church and outside of the church for mm. anxiety. And it seems like that's a, a major issue. Well, m- maybe it hardly needs definition, but what is anxiety? How, how would you define it? 
Yeah. So I, I define, biblically speaking, I define anxiety as a subset of fear, what mm. we tend to fear and not like the great and grave fears that like, I'm afraid of something, but what I tend to focus my mind on and worry about and be concerned about. So anxiety is a subset of fear. Those, those nagging fears, those, those fears that are on the edge of your mind that you tend to just uh, spiral in your thoughts as you're worrying about them and be, being concerned about them. So, uh, yeah, anxiety in a general sense is a subset of fear. And obviously, there are a lot of things to be anxious about, illness, uh, relationships, finances, politics, employment, even death and other things. But is anxiety sinful or not? Uh, in 1 Corinthians 7, the Apostle Paul talks about the different types of anxieties that we experience, and he says the, the married man is anxious about how to care for his wife. The unmarried man is able to be anxious about the concerns of the Lord, the things of the Lord. And so the way that the Apostle Paul uses that word there, he shows us that there are concerns that are not sinful. It's not, it's not sinful to be, as he uses that term, anxious about the things of the Lord. Mm -hmm. And also, it's not sinful to be anxious, again, as he uses the word in 1 Corinthians 7, about caring for one's wife. That's biblical, that's godly, that's good. And so, if we use the term just as concerns, there's, there's nothing inherently sinful about that. Uh, to be fearful, though, about the wrong things and to not fear the things that the Lord would call us to fear. You know, he calls us to fear the Lord. That's the beginning of wisdom. And uh, really trusting him, the fear of the Lord, is the way we drive out these other unbiblical fears, worries, concerns. And to that, Jesus does speak to that we're not supposed to be worried, to be fearful about what we will eat and what we will wear and um, our stature, our length of days, things like that. Th those would be worries that we're, we're not to have, concerns that we're not to have. Instead, we're to, to trust the Lord. So, there can be righteous and godly concerns that's not inherently sinful in any way. And then there can be things that, that the Lord does tell us to cast off that would be not rightly trusting in the Lord uh, if we are worried about those things and preoccupied about those things. So, in one sense, um, anxiety uh, sort of at the base is a, a, a part of being human. It's a part of being a finite human being that uh, doesn't know the future. <laughs> <laughs> Absolutely. And I think that's why God's Word so often speaks to it. Do not fear. Do not worry. Do not let your hearts be troubled. Be anxious for nothing. I mean, we see these types of phrases throughout the Old and New Testament. And it's because God knows our frame. He knows that we are prone to be concerned about these things, to be worried about these things. And it's not this harsh rebuke from, you know, uh, an uncaring, unloving father in any way, uh, you know, quit your worrying or something like that. It's He knows we tend to be worried and preoccupied by these things. It does cut, cut across all of life. <laughs> we all have these anxieties and worries. And he's saying, you don't have to be worried about those things, dear ones, right? It's a, it's a loving and caring and compassionate command when he says not to be anxious about those things. As you said, uh, anxiety is sort of, a, a, in a sense, a subset of fear, something mm -hmm. to that effect. And yeah. perhaps the most common, is it a command in Scripture, is to fear not. Yeah, as far, I've not done the math myself, but uh, wiser theologians than myself have said that's the most prominent command hmm. in all of Scripture. So, is it possible to have an absence of anxiety in various circumstances where normally we would experience it? 
Yeah. So again, I, I think we have to distinguish in how the Apostle Paul says there are legitimate concerns, uh, even as he speaks of all of his sufferings in Second Corinthians, of uh, his beatings, his shipwrecks, and so forth. And then he goes on and he says, and what is more, the continual concern or the continual anxieties of all the churches. Uh, he's saying that there's just this pressure, there's this weight, there's this responsibility as an apostle, as he cares for the churches, as he shepherds the churches, and that's weighing upon him. Now, is that is that sinful? I, I don't think that the apostle Paul is in any way saying that's a sinful anxiety. Um, so there are there are anxieties that are appropriate, concerns that are appropriate, mm -hmm. right? That we should concern ourselves with. Um, but then we are also told be anxious for nothing. You know, how do these things uh, uh, transpire together? So I think that there is an ability to be free from sinful worry or a sinful preoccupation and instead be contented in all circumstances, as Philippians chapter 4 would say, that we are able to be free from these, these sinful anxieties or these uh, unbiblical preoccupations, and we are able to be content in all circumstances, for it's through Christ who gives us strength, who enables us to, to do those things. So I, I do think it is possible. I think that's what the Apostle Paul is speaking of there uh, in Philippians 4, that he was, by the Lord's grace, able to be contented in all circumstances. So how do we appropriate those promises to be anxious for nothing, to to be content, to fear not? What, what is involved in living those out, if you will? Yeah, that's a wonderful question. And we could spend the rest of our time just mm -hmm. unpacking that. Um, if we see fear and trust as being uh, indirectly proportional, if I can, you know, use that that technical language. Mm -hmm. uh, the more we fear something, the less we are trusting in the Lord. Or, you know, said another way, the more we're appropriately fearing the Lord, the less we're going to fear these these other things. And so, if the my trust in the Lord, my faith in the Lord, my confidence in the Lord is increasing, then my sinful worries or anxieties are going to be decreasing. I think that's the very point of Jesus in Matthew 6 and in Luke chapter 12. My favorite verse on anxiety is Luke 12, 32, when Jesus says, fear not, little flock, it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Just how tender, how precious that is. That's, again, not a harsh rebuke. He's saying, look, if your Father uh, knows how to care for the birds of the air, the lilies of the field, and he has guaranteed to give you all things, that he's giving you the very portion that Jesus himself has earned for you, and you need not worry about these things. You need not be concerned about these things. What he's calling us to there, what Jesus is calling us to there, is a confidence in the Lord, a trust in the Lord, which casts out those, those sinful worries. And then another principle that I, I really do think this comes out in Philippians chapter 4, where Paul is speaking to um, not fearing, not worrying, not being anxious, being anxious for nothing, but instead, by prayer and supplication, make your thanksgiving, be known to God, and then whatever is pure, whatever is excellent, whatever is praiseworthy, think on such things, and then what you've seen in me, uh, what you've seen and heard, uh, then practice these things. And so he's giving us three means to lay hold of um, this this ability to be content in all circumstances, and what he gives us there is thanksgiving, that we would uh, make our prayers and requests known, make our thanksgiving known to the Lord, cultivating a thankful heart, uh, to set our minds on what is pure and lovely, to, to think the right thoughts uh, that, that God would have us to, and then to practice the things that God would have us to practice. And, and so then we have, I, I think, four key principles of addressing anxiety. Trust in the Lord, thankfulness, cultivating a heart of thankfulness, 
thinking rightly about that which is excellent and praiseworthy, praiseworthy and practicing the things that the Lord has called us to practice. And I think this drives out uh, any sinful preoccupation with the things that we ought not be preoccupied by. Well, my guest today on His People is Dr. Keith Evans. He is professor of biblical counseling at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. He has also served as a pastor in Indiana. And we're talking about his article found at the blog called Gentle Reformation. It's titled Three Main Issues. Uh, and we're talking about anxiety, pornography, and oppression in marriage. And Dr. Evans, is, as I understand it, the, you are breaking each of these three out in coming uh, articles, coming pieces as well. Is that right? That's correct. Yeah, the first was an introductory piece, just setting out these three articles, and uh, the other one just posted, and the other two are forthcoming in the coming months. Okay. Well, the next uh, pornography, and without being too explicit, obviously, many older people might think we're talking about photographs in magazines, but that's not it um, anymore. Can you describe the magnitude of the problem in 2022? Well, Historically, pornography was something that was done in under the cover of secrecy and magazines under a bed. And now it seems like this is one of the issues that our culture is no longer embarrassed by it, parading it, uh, flaunting it. It's it's above the fold as far as conversation around the water cooler or over the coffee pot. There would be conversations of just a, a, a lewd nature that. 20 years ago, 40 years ago, just wasn't the case that this was appropriate and polite company. It's almost expected that, well, of course, men would struggle with pornography, even expected in the church. I, I've shared with pastors of, yeah, you know, another pornography case, just trying to help help a brother work with. And um, the response is, well, it's to be expected, as as though it's just so commonplace that there's there's no sorrow over the fact that there there are these struggles. Does it have to do with the not not to not to make it too simple, but the ubiquity, the ever-present nature of the smartphone? Certainly, and these images and videos are with you wherever you go, and so the privacy of doing these things under the cover of concealment. Well, if uh, that's always available in your pocket, <laughs> uh, no matter where you go, it's it's always at your fingertips. And uh, it's been talked about a lot in recent years, but can you address how addictive it is? Yeah, I mean, I personally have not done brain studies and so forth to show the effects on the brain, but I, I have read uh, documented evidence to say it does restructure your brain. It does function like other types of addiction, substance addiction, uh, substance abuse, that it becomes so habitual and so ingrained that even if there's not necessarily a desire at the moment to return to it, it's just so commonplace that you've been walking in it that it's natural to just go back to it and very hard to, to break those patterns. Absolutely. And in terms of those most affected or afflicted, I mean, obviously we're talking about men, but young men, old men, but women aren't exempt at all anymore, are they? They're, they're not. And when I first began in counseling ministry, I was shocked by the first 12-year-old girl who was saying, yeah, I'm struggling with pornography. That was, that was jarring for me, but it's definitely become much more common, even in marriage counseling, trying to get the 
wife on my side to say he shouldn't be looking at this. And mm -hmm. occasionally the wife will say, well, it's no problem. I look at it too. And again, even in the church, that, that this, is, this is jarring. This is unsettling. So yeah, it's not just a young man's problem. It's not just a man's problem. Uh, it's a human problem. <laughs> and here you're addressing it. You're addressing it in your piece. And, and it is being addressed to some extent. But, but in your opinion, is it being addressed adequately or much? in church circles, in Christian circles, or is it seemingly kind of dropping below the radar as time has gone on? Yeah, I think it's either spoken to in churches much the same way that those issues out there, those issues that others struggle with, mm -hmm. we can use that as low-hanging fruit to say, well, we ought not be engaging in that. And and it's kind of a drive-by <laughs> preaching or teaching that, yeah, this is inappropriate. We know that this is wrong. If you're dabbling in this, flee this, as opposed to how are we helping people? How are we calling people uh, regularly in the preaching and in the teaching and so forth? Come, get help. If you're struggling, please, there are ways uh, we we have struggled. There, there are there are ways out of this. There are help. Please, brothers, sisters, come. And are we approaching it in that beautifying way of there is deliverance? Are we giving people a plausibility structure? That's mm -hmm. uh, an overly technical term, but are we giving people a, a plausible way forward? Or are we just saying, this is sin, this is something that needs to stop? And I appreciate that. And, and certainly, you, one thing that might grow out of that kind of a perspective is there's shame around it, in, in Christian circles at least to some extent, and that could cause silence if somebody is struggling with it, if it's sort of seen as something that happens out there, not so much in here, but if it's happening in the church, it might make somebody reticent, perhaps, to seek help for it. Absolutely. I think that's a pitfall in the counseling ministry in general. There's a shame associated with it that if I need help, well, it shows that there's something deficient in me. Shouldn't it be sufficient that I have my Bible and I have prayer and I have the public gatherings of worship and so forth, and I have everything I need. And if I need something extra, something's wrong. And how much more so then when it's a sin that's inherently shameful, private, concealed, secret, uh, it's all that much more difficult to come and get the help. Well, what do you recommend? Obviously, you counsel people that deal with this. What are some suggestions, recommendations to best fight against a pornography problem, addiction, struggle? Yeah, first would be to go back to what we were just saying a moment ago. I think we need to be speaking about it, preaching about it, not in a condemnatory way, mm -hmm. but a come, brother, sister, get help, seek help. We're here to help. Uh, and again, to give that that plausible path forward of people have been delivered, you know, as as appropriate for, for pastors, teachers, uh, speakers to say, I've struggled in the past. I've been delivered. Would you come? Please get, give, get help. I think that that would be first and foremost. Uh, secondly, I think there's a great place for accountability and software but those need to remain as, as helps and supports and not the primary way mm -hmm. that people are being delivered from these things. If your heart is not in it, there are a dozen loopholes of always getting around software and accountability. You can lie to accountability partners and so forth. So if you just keep wanting to go back to these things, there are always avenues around it. So those accountabilities and, and software supports and so forth, they're secondary. There's a great place for them, a great use for them. 
but I think we need to see them as secondary. And then I think we need to be battling with the ordinary things that the Lord has given us as far as prayer, <laughs> prayer that the Lord would deliver, uh, love for him and his words, seeing the pearl of great price as this love that displaces these other loves. And are we growing in our, our affection for Christ, a walking with Christ, a fellowshipping with him regularly, and cultivating that discipline, that discipleship, instead of just, well, I just have to stop doing this thing that I still find really lovely and pleasing. So I think those would be some of the initial helps, I would say. And so you use the word deliverance, which in, in another sense means to be set free from. So it's part of that broader spiritual warfare that believers are engaged in. We need, we need God's power to be set free from this. Absolutely. Yeah, there's no question. Uh, the best that we can do, apart from the work of the Holy Spirit, is whitewashed tombs or cleaning the outside of the cup. And yeah, we can get rid of, we can clean up our lives. But if that's not empowered by the Holy Spirit, I don't know how lasting that's going to be. Well, my guest today on His People is Dr. Keith Evans, professor of biblical counseling at Reformed Presbyterian Theological Seminary. We're talking about his article that he wrote at General Reformation, Three Main Issues. We're talking about anxiety pornography, and now turning to the third, these are the three main issues that you see uh, in your counseling practice, as you said, uh, Dr. Evans, oppression in marriage. And I'm wondering, can you describe what you're referring to there? Yeah, so ordinarily, this breaks on gender lines. Now, I have seen, uh, maybe I could count on, on one hand, um, oppressive women, but by and large, this is men who oppress their wives. Hmm. And by that, I mean they're heavy-handed, a hyper sense of their authority, and they'll talk, I am king of my castle, and mm -hmm. my wife just needs to submit in all things. And there's a baptizing of sin with biblical proof texts of uh, male headship or something like along those lines, but it really still is, uh, it tends to be uh, men oppressing their wives. And, and just right at the top as we begin discussing this subject, I've heard someone say that while that's certainly an issue, that uh, passivity among men in marriage also is a huge issue. This person referenced Adam and Eve, and as Eve was being beguiled by the serpent, Adam was sort of seemingly standing passively by, took the, the fruit passively, and then he blamed her for it. Uh, what, what about that? What about the issue of, of, of passivity versus oppression? Yeah, that's wonderful. And our culture certainly is seeing uh, the effeminization, and I think intentionally so, the effeminization of men. We see the um, prolonging of adolescence on into 35 years of age, staying in your parents' basement, playing video games, yeah. not pursuing uh, the responsibilities of manhood that, that Christ would call us to. So absolutely, I, I see that passivity. I see that that feminization. So certainly men need to, to step up and need to be called to step up. But I think that there's a pendulum swing in some sense. There's there's a response where we don't want to be feminist men, and therefore we need to be really strong, masculine, domineering men, and the pendulum swings too far instead of a Christ-likeness of leadership and so forth. What would you suggest, and I realize our time is so short here, and I thank you for kind of boiling these things down at least to give some initial help and hope to people that might be struggling with one of these things, uh, for, for, for oppression in marriage 
marriage. You say, of course, it's overwhelmingly uh, the issue uh, with men, with the husband, but how do you suggest that that be addressed? That's a difficult one. Uh, because statistically speaking, not that we trust in the God of statistics, so we trust in the God who changes lives and transforms lives. And I see transform lives mm-hmm. all the time. But statistically speaking, uh, those who tend to use oppressive tactics get a taste for it and tend not to change. Uh, again, just statistically speaking, humanly speaking, because there is great benefit to being able to live selfishly and arrogantly and pridefully and there really being no means of having that challenged. So I think the response needs to be, yes, counseling, but also an appropriate care of the whole body of Christ, that the church needs to be involved in that discipleship process of that man who's using power and control dynamics in his home, that this is not the Christ-like way. I think there needs to be preaching and teaching along those lines of what does Christ the all-powerful Lord, what does he look like in his leadership of the church? Not domineering, not oppressing those, uh, as Psalm 110 says, uh, oppressing, uh, he doesn't oppress his volunteers in the day of his power. Uh, What a precious way that he leads and guides his church and shepherds his church. So, I, I think that that wholesale congregational shepherding of the man away from power dynamics and toward the meekness of Christ and the tenderness of Christ. And it does. It seemed to me that to take that that approach of the of being an oppressor overlooks major portions of Scripture. Right? I think of Ephesians chapter five: Husbands, love your wives as Christ loved the church and gave Himself up for us. Submit to one another. Love your wives as your own bodies. I mean, you kind of have to overlook, don't you, <laughs> those verses? Absolutely. Or you have to invert those verses by saying, "Well, look at the preceding verses." The wife has to submit to the husband in all things, in everything, and so therefore we can kind of wink at the husband's portion because we've just been given a pass by the Lord mm. that there is this absolute authority of the husband over the wife. Is there any connection between this oppression in marriage to the pornography issue? That's fascinating. I certainly see a self-centeredness in pornography use that as we're using these videos, these images, these narratives to bring self-gratification, the idea is I am Lord over my fantasy world. And this person, these videos, these images or whatever, they live to serve me and do whatever I please. And in my fantasies, I can do whatever I please to these people. And so, too, that oppression in marriage, this woman lives for me, and she's here for me to care for me, to learn how to care for and please her husband. And so, even though it's lived out in relational dynamics and it's harder to accomplish, there's still that self-centered lordship of serving thyself. You didn't address this in your article, and again, this is a completely different subject, but I'm wondering to what extent are drug and alcohol abuse part of, of these problems? I would see them weave in and out. I would see them as related. I'd see them as overlapping. I'd see them at times uh, separate and discrete issues. Mm -hmm. Yeah, so I'd certainly see them uh, all throughout. Well, it sounds like what you're saying for sure. Of course, you're a professor of biblical counseling that there is help, there is hope for people that that are dealing with each of those. And in the short time, can you kind of recap for us where that where that help where that hope is found? 
Yeah, that in all of these, the help and hope comes from a personal walking and communing with the Lord Jesus Christ. If we think that Jesus is just some guy on the pages of Scripture, and it's like we're reading a history book about him who's accomplished a great salvation, but we're not walking with him and communing with him, uh, delighting in him of understanding how he meets and addresses our fears and concerns, how he satisfies our deepest cravings, and how it is his character that we are to be like in all of the relationships of life and his gentleness, meekness, and so forth. If we're missing that, that walking and communing with Christ, then I think we're going to struggle with all these areas and and then some and, and many different other areas as well. So I think it's walking with, communing with the person of Jesus Christ. You've been listening to His People on Pilgrim Radio. Many thanks to our guest, Dr. Keith Evans, Professor of Biblical Counseling at Reformed Theological Seminary. You can read his piece, Three Main Issues, at gentlereformation.com. Coming up on tomorrow's program, it's Peter Gurry on the amazing story of how we got our Bible, like William Tyndale's contributions. And in the letter, he is writing to a friend in this cold, dark prison in Europe, facing death, and he asks for two things to be sent to him. The first is warmer clothes, because it's cold. Mm -hmm. And the second is he asks for his Hebrew books so that he can continue translating the Old Testament. He never did finish translating it. That's tomorrow at the same time right here on His People. Thanks for listening.